0: You know, that the church has, has always faced challenges. There have always been challenges. Uh, as some of you recall in the very first century, uh, we talked about it in the book of James uh, last semester, and uh, we're hearing about it in Colossians. You hear it in uh, the Psalms that Don is teaching uh, right now in Sunday school, that, that even in that first century, in those early days, that the church wrestled with difficulties Persecution from Romans, infiltration of the Judaizers in that first century as those first Christians learned what it meant to live their faith out in a difficult world. Fast forward to the 16th century where Christians were faced with uh, the corruption of the gospel by the large standing and established Catholic church and uh, had largely to rediscover the gospel and, and rediscover the Bible in that generation. And the 20th century was no different. In the 20th century, many challenges to the church, most notably the challenge of liberal theology that reduced the Bible to a fallible document, not the God-breathed scriptures that we know it to be. And as we come to our century, the 21st century, uh, we we see that we face challenges today as in any generation. Uh, we've seen just in recent decades uh, the church growth movement where Church has been redesigned to uh, entertain and attract unbelievers, and along the way, often compromising the gospel message. We've seen the emergent church movement, a, a rejection of absolute truth and gospel certainty. And most recently, the most current battle, uh, I think, to face the church today is a problem, a challenge that we call critical theory. Um, and I just I want to talk to you not so much about critical theory and what it teaches today, but what I want to talk to you about is how the church should respond to any challenge that we face. In every generation, in any age of church history, we will face challenges. And we need to know how do we respond to those challenges. Uh, this last fall, I did a whole series on Christianity and culture, and specifically on Christianity and racial issues, and you're welcome to go on the website and listen to that, if that might be helpful to you, where, where we talk at more at length about racial issues. Uh, but I want to talk more broadly, not, not just about critical race theory, but about critical theory in general. Um, look, can I just give you a, a brief overview, if that's new to you? How many of you have not heard about critical theory? Just raise your hand. Okay, so a few of you. Um, so this will be reviewed to most of you. Um, the title of the message today is A Roadmap for Faithfulness in Woke America. And uh, in, in order to understand what does woke America even mean, we need to have a little bit of an idea what critical theory teaches. So let me just... It, there's a section in your notes called Introduction, and uh, that's where this goes if you want to follow along there. Just very, very briefly, critical theory teaches... Uh, it, it's really a worldview that teaches that there are really two groups of people. You, you can take all people in the world and divide them up into one of two categories, either um, uh, those that are oppressors or those that are being oppressed. Okay, that, that's, that's how the worldview of critical theory sees people. You're either in one of those two groups, you're an oppressor or you're an oppressed. And the problem, according to critical theory, is that the dominant group the oppressors, use power against other groups in order to bring themselves benefits and stay in power. And the solution, according to critical theory, is a radical revolution of destroying the systems of oppressors and elevating oppressed groups and the systems that they represent. So that's critical theory in a nutshell. It's a view about people, it's a view about problems, and it's a view about what we do about that in terms of solutions. And again, uh, we think of this in race relations, but, but it really goes beyond that. Uh, critical theory is something much deeper than just thinking about uh, racial tensions and things like that, although critical theory certainly uh, is a- at play in regard to race relations in our country and around the world. So so what happens with this? A critical theory applied to race relations has concluded that white European, heterosexual, Christian men are oppressors. Um, People of other ethnicities, other skin colors, other genders, other sexual orientations and religions are the oppressed. And as a result of that, we we see critical theory not just in race relations and, and how that's seen, we see it in other areas of society as well. We see it in American society. We see it eroding and challenging and revolting against law and order. We see it uh, revolting against, challenging, seeking to destroy and reorient our judicial system, our constitution and how our constitution is understood. We see it revamping and changing uh, and and, uh, revolutionizing our educational system. Any of you that's a college student? Uh, We got Weldon back here, back from college. We know that, that universities all throughout the world are changing their educational systems in light of critical theory. This is challenging, eroding, uprooting, replacing the so-called Judeo-Christian values that our country was founded upon. Uh, It is affecting law enforcement, how we think about police and, and the enforcement of the law. And perhaps most seriously, it's affecting our families, how we understand Uh, roles in the home and marriage and family and and parenting and and what that means and what that should be, uh, specifically challenging the biblical doctrine of complementarity, that men and women are made equal in the image of God and yet having different roles in both family and in church. And if you're not familiar with it, the, the term woke or wokeness is the idea that critical theory is true and that we ought to be enlightened in regard to the solutions that critical theory presents. And um, so that's what woke means. Woke means I've been enlightened to buy into, to go along with all of this. And if you haven't noticed, this is already doing uh, incredible things in our society. Now, now, just a footnote, at this point, I, I'm not. I'm not... Critiquing or validating everything that I'm said. I'm just trying to help you to understand what critical theory is and what it's doing in our society. Okay, we'll talk in a moment about how I think Christians ought to think about this. But what's happening is the creation of uh, well, well. We, we, we see wokeness at play in in rioting, in political changes. Uh, we we see the emergence of the so-called cancel culture. Have you guys you guys heard about this? Have you seen this? Cancel culture is the idea that by using social, political, or economic bullying tactics by companies like Amazon, Apple, and Google, Facebook, any person or content that is deemed oppressive is simply eliminated. And that's not our government, guys. These are companies that you and I voluntarily decide to buy products and services from. And it's changing our culture. It's changing our landscape. And as Americans, these facts should trouble us greatly, especially in regard to the freedoms granted to us by our Constitution. Many freedoms, especially religious freedom, are being eroded before our very eyes. And we should be concerned about that. But we are Christians first. Our commitment is to King Jesus first. Our commitment to Christ is preeminent. And if you're not sure about that, just come to my Colossians class, what the whole book is about. Jesus ought to have first place in everything, which means even though we ought to care about and be involved in preserving constitutional liberties, that's important as a citizen, we should be much more concerned about how critical theory is affecting our churches and the gospel and Christianity in general. How will we respond? How will we stay faithful to the Bible and to the gospel in the days ahead? And I can't think of a better text in Scripture to help us to know how do we stay faithful? How do we rise to the occasion of various challenges that our church faces, that our country faces, that it comes against the gospel? I can't think of a better text than the one before us today in Second Timothy chapter 3. Um, as I mentioned earlier, as we come to for, uh, Second Timothy, we find Paul not under house arrest. Remember, that happens when he writes Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Philemon. And he could kind of have visitors and things could come and go. Well, something happened after that house arrest. Paul was likely released for a short amount of time and then was taken back into custody, this time not under house arrest, but actually in prison. Uh, you, you'll read in this letter, uh, he talks about being in chains, he talks about it being dark, he talks about being lonely, he talks about people abandoning him. And and so this is a very different scenario than the house arrest. And as he writes what is likely his last letter, at least letter that we have uh, known, to his um, his disciple, the pastor, young Timothy, he, he writes... That Timothy would be faithful, and and let's, can we just get a running start to get into chapter three? Let me just show you a little bit of the tone and tenor of what this book is about. You can hear the urgency. You can hear the the the, the strain, as I mentioned in his voice, that Timothy would be faithful. Look, just look back with me at Second Timothy chapter one, verse thirteen. Listen to what he says here. He says to Timothy, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? He says, retain the standard. Don't depart. Keep it. Right? Stay faithful to what you've learned. Look at the next verse, verse 14 of chapter 1. Guard through the Holy Spirit who indwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Well, what's that treasure? What's the treasure entrusted to uh, Timothy as well as all believers? What is it? It's the gospel, right? So retain the standard. Don't depart from the message. Guard the gospel. Hang on to the gospel that's come to you. Uh, flip forward to chapter 2, verse 1 now, okay? Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach other others also. So be strong, Timothy. Don't depart. Uh, Equip others. Pass on the word, he says. Look down at chapter 2, verse 15. All the kids in the room should know this one. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who would not be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That's the Awana verse, right? That's where we get Awana, the acronym. Approved workmen are not ashamed. That's Awana. It's hard to say that without singing the Iwana song. But anyway, what's he saying? Be diligent, Timothy. Guard the Scriptures. Rightly divide it. Be careful how you interpret it. Don't be be a pastor that brings shame by abandoning the Word of God, by wrongly dividing the Word of God, he says. And as he turns the corner into chapter 3, verse 1, He's he's going to exhort Timothy now specifically to be faithful in difficult days ahead. And, and so what I want to do is I want to take the timeless principles that Paul is going to tell Timothy here to be faithful. How do we be faithful? And I want to apply them, if I could, to some of the challenges that we're facing today. So that's where we get the title of uh, A Roadmap for Faithfulness in woke America. I, I looked at that and I went, a road map? That's so 1995, okay? So, so we can call this GPS coordinates for faithfulness in woke America for you millennials and younger, okay? All right, so I want you to see with me in our, our very short time together four directives for faithfulness in an increasingly woke America. Four directives for faithfulness in an increasingly woke America. Let's look at our first uh, directive, our first Admonition here from the Apostle Paul, and it's this Realize the fact and nature of the difficulties ahead. Realize the fact and nature of the difficulties ahead. Look with me again at chapter 1, or chapter 3, excuse me, verse 1. But realize this, chapter 3, verse 1, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Okay, let's just stop right there. When are the last days? When is it? It's right now. The the last days is an era that happens the moment Jesus ascended back to heaven. Okay? That was back in the first century. So we are living in the last days. The the last days are happening now, according to the Bible. And, And notice with me. Paul wants to remind Timothy, you know what? In those last days, difficult times will come. Now, I don't want to be pessimistic. I do not want to be negative. But I do want to be realistic with what the Bible says. Okay, you ready? Things are only going to get worse. Things are only going to get worse, not better. While sometimes in history, God sees fit to bring a revival where large populations of Christianity, or in some cases, whole cities, whole towns, a massive revival even into countries, God is sometimes kind and gracious to bring those. History ultimately is moving toward in the direction of greater and more perverse sin. And Paul says to Timothy, I just want you to understand this. We're not moving toward Christian utopia. We're moving toward it all burns down. And the only thing that's going to make it better is the return of Jesus. Now, now a footnote, I have dear brothers and sisters that, that genuinely believe that we are moving toward a Christian utopia. And this is just a reminder that eschatology, that is what we believe about the last times, really does affect how we live today. And Jesus will come back. He will rapture His church. He will set up His kingdom. He will right every wrong. He will put everything back in order. All of those things are happening. But until then, Jesus will build His church and there will be a growing family of God, but the world and society at large is going the direction of greater perversity, greater sin, and greater destruction. And and, and Paul says... Be pre- be prepared for that. You remember what Peter says in his letter? He says, don't be surprised. Remember this? Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that's happening to you as if some strange thing is happening. You know, I think sometimes we Christians, we, you know, bing. Oh, there's, there's Fox News. And we go, oh, this is horrible. I can't believe what's... Did you know what's happening? And it's like, yeah. Peter says, don't be surprised, like something strange is happening. An ungodly world that is largely rejecting the gospel is moving toward destruction. And we need to prepare for that. We need to recognize that. But but Paul is is clear. He's not just trying to help Timothy understand the fact of the difficulties ahead, but the nature. And, And notice the description here. Look at the description of what we have... Awaiting us, and actually this is not awaiting us, this is now. This is today. Look at this. For men will be lovers of self. What does he mean by that? Write this down. They will be self-lovers. That's what the word means. Now, can you think of a better way to capture fallen humanity than just simply saying we're in love with ourselves. That's absolutely what's going on. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. And you guessed it, that means money lovers. You got it, you're noticing the trend here, okay? Self lovers, money lovers, boastful. That word means braggers. They're they're arrogant, haughty, they're proud, they're stuck on themselves. Revilers, that means demeaning and defaming and denigrating one another. They're disobedient to their parents. You know what that means? In their heart, they reject authority at even the most basic fundamental level of society, the parent-child relationship. They're ungrateful. They lack thankfulness and and, and a thankful heart. They're unholy, meaning they live in impurity. They're unloving. They lack lack feelings toward others. They're hard-hearted. They're without regard for others. They're irreconcilable. That word means they're unwilling to negotiate a solution to a problem with others. They they don't want to try to get along. They don't want to work on getting along. They're malicious gossips. That just means they're slanderers. They're without self-control, lacking an ability to control their desires and impulses is what that means. They're brutal. They're savages. They're haters of good, lacking an interest in. In the public good is what he means by that. They, they hate what is good. They're treacherous. That word means they're traitors. They're betrayers. They're reckless. We love to make rash, reckless, thoughtless choices and decisions. Conceited, right? Puffed up. Arrogant. And you're saying, this is sounding familiar. It sounds like he's going back to the list. Actually, he does. He, he builds the list in an arrow, right? He starts with lovers of self. And he concludes with what? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Those bookend the whole section here. We're in love with ourselves. We're in love with pleasure instead of loving and honoring and following the God who created us. Paul is saying in the last days, people will be controlled by pleasure instead of God. Do you see that we're in the last days? Let me ask you a harder question. Do you see these things in your own hearts? I do. We see the residuals of even those of us who know Christ battling with these things, battling with these qualities. He says, look, look at the text here. He says, they hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Meaning, it's not that people are rejecting necessarily religion or even Christianity itself. It's like they want to hold on to the shell of religiosity, but they reject the power. They reject the gospel itself. And then Paul says something that makes us stare back at the letter. He says, Avoid avoid such men as these. Um, And we go... What is he talking about? Is he saying we're supposed to go out in the world and just avoid, you know, people that act like that? No, no. He's not talking, guys. This list is not characteristic of unbelievers out there. He's saying this is what the church is going to look like in the last days. Isn't that indicting? This is the direction that the church goes if we're not careful. This was what Paul was seeing at the church at Ephesus as false teachers came in and began to reorient the church. Paul says, be careful Uh, and don't take my word for it. Just hold your place there. Look back at chapter 2, verse 17. This tells us what Paul is talking about. Chapter 2, verse 17. Paul specifically warns Timothy. He says, uh, their talk will spread like gangrene. And among them are these two guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Paul is saying, here's two examples of what I'm talking about. These are two false teachers, false doctrine, false ideas that come into the church, and he's saying this is the direction that the church is going to go if you don't guard and stay strong and stand on the gospel. And this is indicting. This is scary. Look at the next phrase. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, when believers, professing believers, take advantage of other people. And I confess, I I couldn't read that without thinking of the tragedy of what we now know about Rabbi Zacharias and, and the, the scandal, the horror um, of all those women that he took advantage of while he was in ministry. They always learn and never come to the knowledge of the truth. This is, this is the danger, guys. This is the direction that the church will go if we're not careful to guard the truth. And Paul gives us an example here. Look what he says there. Just as Janice... And Jambres opposed Moses. How many know who Janus and Jambres are? Okay. If you go back and read at the time of Moses, you're not going to find their names. But Jewish tradition and some Jewish history books tell us that Janus and Jambres were two of the magicians in Pharaoh's court. Remember when Moses was doing the miracles to try to convince Pharaoh to let the people go? Those were two magicians from his court. And Jewish tradition tells us that they they made professions of faith to Judaism later on and then opposed Moses and sought to bring all sorts of false doctrine and difficulty into the people of Israel. And he says there, that's, a, that's an example of what I'm talking about, right? People that come in, they infiltrate the church, they introduce false doctrine. These are men of depraved mind, they're rejected in regard to the truth. But they're not going to make for, further progress as he says... Janus and Jambres' folly was stopped as well. Now look at verse 13. This is the key, okay? Stay with me. But evil men and impostors, meaning people that come into the church, act like Christians, call themselves Christians, act like teachers, call themselves teachers, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You say, what does that mean? It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Now notice the description here. They are being deceived. Christians, professing Christians, are being deceived. Meaning they, they're buying into lies. They're blind to the truth. But notice this. Notice this. As they are deceived themselves, what do they do? They go into the church and do what? They deceive. They try to get the church of Jesus to buy into the lies, the mistruths, the errors... That they've fallen into. Now, how are they going to do that? Do you know how they do that? They do that through plausible lies. This has been the strategy of Satan since Genesis 3. It's something that looks good, sounds good, has a glimmer of rightness to it, even is a partial truth in a lot of way. But there's a hook of error. There's a deception of untruth. These are ideas that seem plausible, they make sense. And, you, and you, know, you know the biggest hook that we're falling for today? They appeal to our emotions. They appeal to how we feel. They appear right and good. You say, how do we tell? How do we not buy into these things? Well, look back at the list. Paul tells, here's, here's how you avoid being deceived. Here's how you avoid error. You look at what it produces. I mean, look back. Malicious gossips without self control, haters of good, treacherous, <clears throat> excuse me, reckless, conceited. You look back and say, is that teacher, is that doctrine producing godliness or selfishness and wickedness and evil? And this is not new. Jesus said in Matthew 7, the sheep that, or excuse me, the wolves that disguise themselves as sheep, the false teachers, how are you going to know them? You know them by their what? Their fruits, by what they produce. So we, we have to look carefully. You will know false teachers by their fruits. And so we have to be careful. We need to realize the fact and nature of the difficulties ahead. That's the first warning. That's, that's the first directive. Paul says to Timothy, be careful. Don't be deceived. Guard your heart. Guard your mind. Be careful what you believe. Well, there's a second directive here, a, a second GPS coordinate in our, in our roadmap of, of moving toward faithfulness and maintaining faithfulness. We, we don't need to just recognize the fact and nature of the difficulties. Be careful what we buy into. Secondly, we need to recognize the reality that godliness brings persecution. Secondly, we need to recognize the reality that godliness brings persecution. Look at verses 10 and following with me. Now you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, persecutions, sufferings, as such happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured. Now look, Paul loves this, right? Whenever Paul gives a list... ...of things not to do... ...what's he going to do right after that? He's going to give you another list of things to do. Okay, we call that putting off and putting on. Avoid this, don't do this, don't go after that. Instead, do this instead. And look at the list that he gives here. Instead of following false teachers... ...that bring all the wrong type of fruit... He said, ...Paul says, this is where you need to be. And he commends Timothy for saying... ...this is what you've been doing. Look at this. You've maintained, it says there, teaching... That refers to sound doctrine, to biblical teaching. He says, you you followed my conduct, my way of life. You followed my purpose. I love that word. It means to resolve. If you have an ESV Bible, it says he followed his aim in life, his direction of pleasing God rather than pleasing self. He followed faith. And that, and that word probably doesn't mean faith like Like trusting Jesus, it probably has the idea of faithfulness or fidelity. You've continued to believe these things. You've continued to glorify God. You've continued to stand on sound doctrine. And then look at this you followed my patience. Oh my goodness. We talk about critical theory, we talk about race relations. You talk about corruption in society, you talk about the arguments, you talk about the mess out there, Paul says, you know how you need to handle that? Ready? With patience. That's what a godly person does. That's what a person truly committed to Christ does. What does patient mean? I'll give you a definition. It's the state of remaining tranquil by waiting, while waiting. The state of remaining tranquil while waiting. Can we just admit we don't do that very well? We do not do that very well. You could also say that patience is saying steadfast under provocation. And, and, And patience, look at the next word, love, right? Love and patience is what ought to characterize our church while we engage in conversation with all of this mess around us. Oh, thank you. And the last thing he says there is perseverance. The capacity to hold out and bear up in the face of difficulty. Paul says, this is the list you want to be steadfast to. Sound teaching, purpose, faithfulness, patience, love for others, and perseverance. Listen to me. When we, we prepare for threats and we respond to threats by seeking to live in a way that pleases the Lord... Remember that first list, verses 1 to 9, that first list? When we start acting like that, when we start looking like that, when we start promoting that, we are denying the faith that we profess. We are not seeking to please God. And Paul says here, this is the list you want. Purpose, faithfulness, patience, love, perseverance. And when we exemplify these attributes, we know we are in a good place how listen how will we navigate the murky waters of difficulty we will do it with the clarity of godly attributes that's how we're going to do it when you're talking to somebody and they're they're telling you what they believe and you're going man that's way out of sorts with the bible how you treat that person how you engage that person is so much of the need of the moment today And Christians, first and foremost, ought to exemplify Christ in how we do that. Look back at the text. And it's especially important that we do these things as we interact with people. Look at verse 224 again. um, Let's see. Yeah, it's it's, it's especially important that we we exemplify this with people. Look look back at chapter 2, verse 24. Listen to this. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Do you like to underline things in your Bible? Will you underline this if you do that? Will you underline star highlight? You know, you you can like do it on your iPad, right? Click, boom, it's yellow, right? You can do that on your iPad too, your iPad Bible. Guys, this is what this looks like in interacting with people, and this is so much the need of the hour. Verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to people that agree with us, right? Is that what it says? Kind to all. Able to teach. Patient. Right? Remember, enduring, remaining tranquil while we wait, right? Patient when we're, what? We're wronged. With conviction, correcting those, no, with gentleness correcting those in opposition if perhaps god may grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth and that they may become come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will that's how a christian engages the culture that's how a christian engages woke america that's how a christian shares the gospel with people that are sometimes hostile and aggressive we do it with gentleness we do it with patience we do it with long-suffering, praying that God would open their eyes to the gospel. But look back at chapter 3 now. If we do that, that does not guarantee smooth sailing. In fact, in fact, Paul's going to say the opposite. Look at this. He says, when I did that, I was persecuted right at Antioch. You can read about that in Acts 13. He was persecuted in Iconium. That happened in Acts 14. He was persecuted in Lystra. You can read about that in Acts 16. He says, as I tried to exemplify a commitment to biblical truth and teaching and conduct, what did it bring in the Apostle Paul's life? It brought persecution and suffering. Can I talk about that word persecution real quick? I was talking to Lisa about this. I think this is really important. Do you know what that word persecution means? I don't know about you, but when I read the word persecution in the Bible, I think that's not me. That's not the American church, right? That, that, that's people, that's John Knox, right? These are people that died at the stake for the gospel. These, these are people that were beheaded and crucified upside down. Those are people that are persecuted. And you know what? They, they, those are. Those are the most overt uh, examples of persecution. But I was really surprised when I looked this up. It's actually a really normal word. You know what it means? The word persecution just means to harass. It just means to harass. And there are going to be all sorts of opportunities as we try to stay faithful to the gospel, faithful to the Bible, to be harassed. Maybe not loss of life, maybe not loss of kindred, but it might be Harassment in some way or another. In fact, the moths of ungodly harassers are drawn to the light of godliness. Did you know that? They are. And Paul says, the Lord rescued me out of all these, praise the Lord. But you, Timothy, you follow my teaching, you follow my conduct, you follow my faithfulness. And then Paul makes this statement. And, and this is not one that Christians like to memorize. It's, it's chapter 3, uh, and verse 12. Look at it. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, that sounds like he's laying it down, right? That sounds like he's saying, if you're committed to godliness, you will be harassed. You will be threatened in some way. And that's true. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a statement of fact. That's a warning. That's a caution. And it's not new, guys. Jesus said, if they persecute me, they're going to do what? They're going to persecute you. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. The church launches out. And what happens in that first century in the 40s, 80-40, as James picks up his pen and writes that first letter of the New Testament? What's going on? Persecution. And it's been going on ever since. Harassment of all kinds. So here's the question You want to be faithful? Are you ready to be harassed? Are you ready to be persecuted? Is your commitment to godliness for the sake of the gospel higher than your desire for comfort or pleasure or economics? Or ease, or status, or recognition? Indeed, all those who desire to love godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Are you ready to be canceled? Are you ready to have freedoms restricted or eliminated? Are you ready to come to the place where you don't have a right to speak in the United States of America? that may be coming. And Paul warns Timothy here, it's a timeless principle for us. We need to be ready and more committed to faithfulness in the gospel and the godliness that God expects us to exemplify than we are to be in love with our comforts, our freedoms, and our voices. And you know what? When that happens a Christian doesn't immediately run to legislation. A Christian doesn't immediately run to a political solution. When that happens, a Christian doesn't run and say, my rights are being taken away. Listen to Acts chapter 5, one of the very first instances where those early Christians were were persecuted. Remember, they came in, what did they do? They, They beat them up, they threw them into jail, they flogged them, they beat them, And then they released him and said, don't do that again. Don't, don't preach Jesus again. And this is what Acts 5 says. Listen to this, guys. This is our model. You ready? So they went on their way from the presence of the council, listen, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's how a Christian responds. And then the text tells us, and they went, they went on, kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus. That's how we respond. We count it worthy to suffer for the gospel. And our commitment to Jesus is higher than any other commitment. Is that how you or I would respond? We're trying to build a a roadmap, right? GPS coordinates for faithfulness in woke America. We need to recognize the fact that it's going to get worse, right? It's going to get worse and we need to be prepared for that. The second thing we need to recognize is that if we desire to do this, If we desire to be faithful, if we desire to be godly, there will be harassment of various kinds. And how will we respond to that? Number three, we need to commit to continue in the things we have learned. Commit to continue in the things you have learned. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, You, however... If you were to see that in the Greek text, you would see that there are stars and highlights and exclamation point, bold face. He's like, you, Timothy. It emphasizes you. You can see Paul calling out Timothy eye to eye, as it were. You, however, continue, remain. It's the same word that Jesus said when he said, abide in me, remain in me, right? You, however, continue, remain in the things you have learned and become convinced of. What does he say? Continue in the confidence of what you've learned. Don't depart. Don't turn away. Don't entertain other ideas. Guys, every generation of Christianity, there's new things. There's novel things. There's new books. Nowadays, there's new blogs. There's new teachers. There's new ways of doing things. And the Bible's message is if it's novel, it's probably bad. Because the Bible's message is continue in the things that you've learned. It is the old rugged cross. It is the, the standard of sound words that must be retained. Commit to continue in the things you have learned. Knowing, look at this. Look at the next part. He says, knowing from whom you have learned them. I want you to stop for a second. And I want you to think. Who was the person... That shared the gospel with you for the first time. Who was that person? Who was that mentor you had in college? Who was that mentor you had as a young married? Who was that mentor? Kids, think of your Awana teachers right now. Think of your Sunday school leaders. Think of your BSF leaders. Think of pastors and elders that have invested in you. Think of your favorite faithful Christian authors that have taught you the word of God and and called you to faithfulness. Think about those people now. Paul says, do you have those in your mind, Timothy? Are you thinking about those guys? Remember them and be faithful and be confident and endure. Not, not, Not to let them down But because fidelity to the gospel depends on you continuing in the things that you've learned and become convinced of. Stay confident in those things. Look at this. And that from childhood you had known the sacred right. I'm really curious. How many of you have known the Bible from childhood? Raise your hand. What a godly grace that is, isn't it? You know, some of you kids, you don't you don't know a home. Where the name of Jesus has not been taught, you you don't know uh, you don't know what church is like without a wanna, right? Um, others of you uh, came to faith in different ways, but you you think of the heritage right here that Paul says that that he's known from childhood. Timothy has known from childhood the sacred writings. If if we go back to chapter one, we, we know why he knew those sacred writings. You know why? He had a godly grandmother, and he had a godly mother. Praise God for godly grandmothers and godly mothers who've invested so much that we benefit from even today, right? People like Eunice and Lois that are mentioned here in chapter 1, Paul's mother and grandmother. That Timothy has known the sacred writings from childhood. He says, continue in that. Be confident in that. Remember your mentors. Remember your parents. Remember your teachers. And stay the course, Timothy. Because those things, look at the next part of the verse, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Those godly writings, those scriptures are able to bring wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And now, okay, you're wondering this like I am. Why does he go there? I mean, he's talking about all sorts of problems and people are in God, they're lovers of pleasure and they're wicked and they're taking advantage of people and, and they're abusing one another. And he says, why does, do you see how this, this all funnels down to this one point where he says, Timothy, don't depart from the gospel. We say, why is the gospel the issue? Why talk about this in the midst of all of these problems in society? Very simply, because the gospel is and will always be the only hope for sinful humanity. That's why. We don't depart from that. We don't say, oh, maybe here's another solution. Or maybe we need to add this other thing. The gospel is the only hope. When we look around... Are you broken hearted as I am at injustices around the world? People being taken advantage of, people being abused, and that may be racial, it may be because of their skin color, it may be because of their economic status, it may be because of the country they live in, it may be any sorts of things, and we see that injustice and we grieve and we ought to grieve. We, we see sin rampant, we see racial tensions. I mean, we're supposed to be enlightened today, right? We're, we're supposed to be better technologically and medically. And yet we see a rift between people of color uh, in, in, in not just in our country, but in lots of countries around the world. We see problems in society, political problems and cultural problems. What solves the problems that Paul has said in those first nine verses of they're lovers of self and money and boastful and arrogant and they don't obey their parents and they're treacherous and right. Re- what solves that problem? Only the gospel. There are no political solutions, political leaders and new legislation. There are no social solutions, more education. There's no distribution of resources as a solution. And I would dare say that critical theory, though it identifies some legitimate problems, is competing for the steering wheel of the gospel in the church today. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can solve these problems. Do not ever be distracted from the gospel. And this is our chief commitment. This is is the charge to Timothy. Continue to believe and teach the gospel. And the question is, will you stand? Will we stand? Will we be faithful as a church, as individuals? I love what Al Mohler said. Don't just do something. Stand there. On the gospel. And that's where we need to be. And as we do, as we try to work through this woke America standing on the gospel, we need to do one more thing. And that is we need to trust the God breathed scriptures to equip you for every situation. Trust the God breathed scriptures to equip you for every situation. Did you know that's where these verses are in your Bible? I know you know these verses. Did you know that was the on ramp? That was the runway? To these verses, look at verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped, For every good work. We say, what about those sacred writings that Paul mentioned? Why are they so powerful? Why must the Scripture alone be our guide? Why is the gospel alone the solution to the problems of injustice and sin and brokenness and suffering and tension? Why is that it? Because only the Bible is God breathed, only the Bible is God's Word. There is no other source, there is no other authority. There is no other place we go to say, how do we fix it? There there is no magic toolbox waiting to be discovered that fixes everything. Only Jesus fixes everything. And he starts by giving us the gospel that we share to a broken and lost world. The scriptures must be our guide. Look back at the text, you know this. All scripture is inspired by God. Literally that means they are breathed out by God. It is the inspiration of Scripture, the the fact that these are God's very words, not the words of men. They are God's words, and that makes them unlike any other source that we have. And and notice, because they are God's words, because they are God-breathed, look what they do. They do what nothing else can do. No politician, no legislation, no social program. They do what only God himself can do. Look at verse 17. They are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What's that saying? Paul uses three words there to emphasize one point. Let me show you the three words. The word profitable the word adequate, and the word equipped. This is a trifecta of vocabulary here to emphasize the fact that only the Bible is sufficient. Only the Bible is capable of helping us to know how we can be faithful in the days ahead. What does this mean? It means that the Bible is sufficient to equip us for every threat, every danger, every challenge, every false teaching, every social influence. The Bible provides us with the wisdom and knowledge we need to be faithful. And the only question the church should ever ask when it comes to these sort of things is to ask this question. What does the Word say? What does the Bible say? And then we stand there. And you say, okay, so how do we navigate through this and that and all this? The answers, does it conform to the Word of God? Does critical theory conform to the Word of God? Does this cultural trend conform to the Word of God? Does this social idea conform to the Word of God? Is what I'm hearing in my college class conform me? Or what I watch on Netflix conform to the will of God? And if it does not, we abandon it and we reject it. That question all Christians answer is, does it ask is, does it conform to the Word of God? We don't need other sources. We don't need other experts. We need to be faithful to the Bible's message regardless of the cost. Now, call me simple. But let's think about that in regard to critical theory and race relations, okay? This is not exhaustive. I just, can we just just pull the car over for a minute and just say, what does the Bible say what does it say? And if you, if you want more, you can go back and listen to the series from last fall, okay? R- really quickly. What does the Bible say about people? It says we're all made in the image of God. We are all made image bearers, which means we all bear the image of our Creator. There's a dignity, there's a respect, there's a worth that we ought to give all people, regardless of what they look like, regardless of where they come from, because according to the Bible, there aren't multiple races, there is one race, and that is the human race, and all people are made in the image of God, and we ought to treat them as such. Number two, application. What's the problem? The problem, according to the Bible, is not this tension over here, this theory over here, this problem over here, this injustice over here. Listen, all of those are symptoms. Those are just the echo of the original cry of sin coming into the world that separates us from God. And you know what? That sin is why we mistreat other people according to the color of their skin sometimes. That, that, that sin is why we don't treat people as fellow image bearers. It's why we don't, we're not kind and patient. It's why we abuse and mistreat other people. Sin is the underlying cause of all that we see that is wrong in the world. And yes, we hurt one another. Yes, we abuse one another. Yes, we can be racist and a thousand other things. But the problem is sin. The problem is the effect of our alienation from the God who made us. And the solution, the solution, is the gospel that reconciles us to God. We've said it already. The gospel is the solution. And do you know what the Bible says? This is so wonderful. I don't think our culture can even imagine what this means. The Bible describes a gospel that reconciles people into one family... Ready? ...of every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. It is a beautiful family. A diverse family that comes around the same gospel, the same Savior, the Word of God. And you know what? It's when we're reconciled to God... It's when God is at work in us. It's when we're in the family of God that we're finally going to learn how to love one another. And can I just say, call me simple. 99% of what happens out there would be solved if we simply loved our neighbor as ourselves, wouldn't it? And that's what we're supposed to do. That's the second great commandment. Okay, so, so we treat people with respect. One race, sin is the problem. The gospel is the solution. And we learn to love our neighbor. We cannot fight spiritual battles with political solutions and social solutions. We must come to the Word of God, to the Gospel of God, and be faithful to stand there as we share it with our world and as we love our neighbors. I think that's, I think that's the charge that we all need to hear today. Let's pray. Father, these are heavy topics. Um, Make us to be faithful in the days ahead to the gospel, to Jesus, to the word of God, and might we love our neighbor, might we listen and be patient and share the love that you have shown us in Christ to a world that is broken and suffering and wicked and going the wrong direction. Lord, make us faithful in this hour to take every thought captive to not just do something, but to stand here and to be faithful until you return. Give us grace and wisdom and patience for these days. In Christ's name, amen.